Uh, so, hello everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for today's AIWA Los Angeles Las Vegas section. Um, very special meeting. Today we have a very special guest uh, and uh, you will learn a lot from her and it's very exciting. Uh, both for a uh, woman's uh, professional career and also for aerospace cybersecurity. Uh, cybersecurity. Uh, she has got a great experience. And now I introduce our uh, moderator and lead today, uh, Ms. Mary Lee Wheaton. She is our AWA Fellow, Aerospace Corporation. Uh, so uh, welcome, Mary Lee. So go ahead. Uh, so you start. This one, this one? Right, this one is bad. Alrighty. Yes, I want to give a warm welcome to um, Jennifer, Colonel, Colonel Kay today. Um, She's had a very long and distinguished career in the Air Force, 27 years, just recently retired, and now is um, Chief Executive Officer for, for Plan Z, which I'm sure we'll hear about. But in her career at the Air Force, she did space as well as uh, aircraft assignments, as well as uh, uh, also assignments related to uh, Joint Chief of Staff. I think what she really became famous for, and one of her next to last jobs was a software factory that she did for called Kobayashi Maru, which really helped SSC become much more agile in the development of their system. So it was a big, big deal, a real contribution to SSC and really helped them in terms of ensuring that they could uh, more quickly be resilient, support the warfighter, that type of thing. And then her the final job that she had was as the um, chief Inf information officer for space systems too. So obviously a very responsible job. So we're really delighted to have her here and to hear her, her talk. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. <laughs> Much, Marilee. I really appreciate it. Um, so I like to I like to have these things be a bit more interactive and uh, kind of a conversation as they go through. Um, only because it part of it is like I'd like to hear, hear what you would like to hear about, not just uh, be pontificating forever. Totally can do. Um, but what I'll kind of do, um, what I thought could be um, interesting place to start is kind of walk through my career, uh, getting on some of the. Uh, the topic Ken was asking about, like, um, women's perspective, um, but just even, like, all of the things I learned and how it all culminated, um, where the cybersecurity piece kind of came into play and why, throughout my career, seeing the pitfalls of why security wasn't necessarily um, taken advantage of, like, how we can, like, do that sort of thing better. It kind of weaves into into the whole thing and stuff, too. Um, so, as um, Marilee said, um, my, I'm actually kind of weird from a lot of um, acquisition professionals in the military. I've done probably every mission thread that's out there in the Air Force and Space Force, uh, which is not usually very common. It's it's typically like you're in space or you're in aircraft or you're in whatever. Um, so when I started out as a second lieutenant, I actually um, I graduated from the University of Dayton, go Flyers, uh, with a mechanical engineering degree. So I am a geek by trade. I love it. I love tech. I love all of that sort of thing. The wicked problems you could throw at is just is cool and awesome. I love it. And, um, you know, joined the military primarily to pay for college because that was the only way I was going to be able to get there. Um, and um, so my first assignment, lo and behold, Wright Pat Air Force Base, you know, going very far away. Um, they put me in the, uh, it was Wright Labs at the time, so I am dating myself a little tiny bit, um, in the in the materials manufacturing directorate. And at the time, it was um, in the plans and process, second lieutenant, you're kind of like, I, I don't even know 
what I'm planning or programming for. So I don't even know anything yet and why am I in this office? But you know, made the best out of it as I could there. But I always decided to like, hey, I want to go get my master's. Um, and I had thought about going to AFIT and whatnot. And um, but I was also I don't know why, but I was a little scared at the time because I was like, hey, can I get in? Can I hack grad school? All this that, and the other. So um, I actually found um, there was a Dayton Area Graduate Studies Institute. Uh, it was like a consortium between uh, multiple different universities within um, Ohio there uh, with like AFIT, um, uh, OSU, Wright State, UD, um, UC, all those kind of guys. And they would give scholarships to folks. And so um, so I applied because like, hey, I could, I'll go part time to AFIT. Uh, my boss you know, signed off that I could you know, get out of work for a, a class or two and then you know, go that way and kind of build up what I was doing um, and then apply for AFIT for real, um, you know, like the following year sort of thing as, as part of the, the traditional AFIT program. Well, Daxi came back and they gave me a full ride and I'm like, hmm, well, that's interesting. So I went to my boss and I'm like, hey, can I do this? And he's like, if you can find a way, go, go for it. And I found a way. I actually found a loophole in one of the regs um, that let me go full time um, to AFIT while I was still assigned to my old job. Um, and, and I bring up this story cause it's, it actually, I didn't really realize it or think about it until much later in my life. And when I was doing some of these kind of discussions of, um, I always would find a way to get something done. Um, I would always work to like, how do you get to something to yes? Or how do you like, figure out how to overcome something when it's something that you want to do, like all of those kinds of pieces and parts. So this was kind of like the first instance of that. And it was very rewarding. So obviously I went to AFIT, got my master's in aeronautical engineering um, and, and went forward from there. Um, so kind of the, the first step of, of that sort of thing. So I wanted to get into test because uh, that's kind of the closest thing you can do in engineering in um, in the government. Uh, and so I actually tried to go to Edwards because, you know, there was some doing some cool stuff back then with the F-22 uh, was just kind of getting out there and um, uh, actually had people who wanted to pull me out there. But in the wisdom of the Air Force, they sent me down to Barksdale Air Force Base uh, to do OT&E on the B-52s. Um, cool kind of a mission, um, good sort of stuff going on. The The problem was that um, the missiles that I was responsible for didn't have any funding for that particular year. Um, so for a whole year, I had nothing to do whatsoever. Um, that is not good with me. I know I'm like a person that needs to kind of keep gainfully employed and stuff. Um, but the office and the organization I was also in was very toxic. So not only did I have nothing to do and was making me like my eyeballs bleed in that respect, but the environment that I was in was um, was not uh, a very growing kind of organization. Um, to the um, and I and I bring that one up because it was I actually almost got out. There's there was a couple few times where I was like I I can't handle this. This is not this is not for me at all. Um, and the biggest thing though that I, I was taking away from there is what people are um because i'm from the midwest you know we're typically really nice to each other we like to you know we everybody you know there i like to think of myself as a nice person most people do like me for you know most intents and purposes and to see people who were like undermining or who were openly hostile or who would try and um just take you down sort of thing it was kind of a, a bit of a wake-up call 
but it was also like, I don't want to run an organization like that. I don't want to be around people and tolerate people who are like that. Um, and so that actually helped shape and form a lot of the way I would communicate with folks um, just in talking with them and what that looked like. And um, uh, just again, like who I wanted to be and, and how I wanted to be when I grew up. So um, obviously I did decide to stay in. Um, I told my then husband um, that I married him to get out of Barksdale because <laughs> I was able to do a joint spouse and um, go to come here to Los Angeles the first time. Um, so I was here from uh, 2001 to 2005 uh, working on GPS was the, the one that I had in there. And I was a uh, lead engineer for the nuclear detonation detection system. So I was, you know, pretty excited about that. I got to do some engineering sorts of things again. Um, one of the interesting things I realized then too was um, how my brain works differently than a lot of other people because I was getting into program management stuff as well. And people who were, you know, more business or um, degree-esque or oriented that way um, had different views of how they looked at life or how they looked at a problem than me and my engineering brain did. So kind of realizing and understanding like you need that diversity of thought as you're gathering information about different projects or what's going on to be able to um, synthesize all that together to be able to ultimately make your decision and go after your program. So it's kind of an interesting sort of, of um, realization myself because I always thought everybody thought like I did, you know, because I'm, I'm in my head all the time. Why aren't you guys? So um, with that, though, I ended up becoming the exec for GPS. I was there um, for about a year doing that. And then I uh, went and worked on GPS3 when that one first started um, in there about a year after I did uh, my exec time. I actually worked the whole acquisition for phase B when they were trying to go to GPS. And for, I'm like dating myself a huge year. <laughs> this is the first time they tried to go to to, to um milestone B in that respect. Um, and I got a real appreciation for the process of acquisition and on all of the steps that you needed to take and, and whatnot that was in there. Uh, the most defeating thing though, was that when uh, we went to the decision authority and like, I want you to scrap all of the work you just did and break it up into chunks. And I'm like, okay, huge mistake. Cause we already had all of the money in place. We already had the whole schedule. We had the contractors on board. We had everything that was, that would go through it. And that one decision that he made um, stalled the program for at least five to seven years um, because of all of the rework that had to do the reestablishing of money that happened to had to happen, all of that sort of stuff. Um, again, a very important kind of lesson on people. And that's one thing that um, the acquisition, you know, they always talk cost schedule performance. Uh, but there's a couple of other elements that people don't add to that listing that's also very important with acquisition. And one of that is people. If you can't get the people in and aligned and on board, it really almost doesn't matter. All the rest of the stuff that you have, um, that is the uh, one of the big key elements that they don't really teach a lot of program managers. How do you get all the people together uh, to be on the same sort of page? Uh, so from there, I became the um, staff director for GPS um, up at the PEO level. And, and had a really good time with that um, as well, too. Got to see like the bigger picture across the whole portfolio of, of things that went on. Um, but it was also starting to be like, I can't hold a job more than a year. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, that's that's good. But I got to learn how to be like really quick, um, getting up to speed, how to how to get in to, un to analyze um, a system, a problem, uh, an issue, and how do you get after solving it quickly? Because you don't know how long you're necessarily gonna to be in that organization. Um, 
from that point, I, so my whole experience with GPS and what we were doing there, I knew um, I wanted to be, uh, uh, they called them SPDs at the time, assist, uh, um, senior material leader is what they call them now. I wanted to have, to be in charge of a big program like that um, and do those kinds of things and make a real impact on, on that kind of life. So, but from that, um, one of the jobs that everybody needs to have is to be a PEM or at least that's a good succession. A PEM is, is a, a person out in the Pentagon who advocates for the program and the D, D, DC area of responsibility, uh, goes to battle, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they were actually pushing me to be a PEM in GPS. I would be one of the junior PEMs because I was only a captain still, which is usually unheard of that anybody goes there as a captain. Um, but the 06 that was in charge of GPS and all of those guys were like, Hey, yes, we, we want Jen out there. She already knows the program. She'd be a great asset, all this on the other. But again, in the great wisdom of the air force, uh, I got assigned to the National Security Space Institute instead in Colorado Springs. Um, needless to say, I was a little like, huh, well, that's kind of interesting. Um, but, uh, it actually turned out to be, um, really, really good for a couple of different reasons. Um, one, I, it gave me the opportunity to be an instructor. So I taught um, acquisition, duh, you know, space acquisition, what all that meant um, in there, space 200, space 300, all of that sort of thing. But I was also um, uh, head of the um, advanced navigation operations class, the coursework that was there. So I taught acquisition, but I also taught GPS. And then I taught this, um, I was ahead of the, um, uh, the navigation um, course. And it was actually another kind of funny thing. Um, when I was there, I was only there for interim to be the head of the, the NavOps course um, because they had somebody from um, TUSOPS, operator type, who was going to come in because, you know, operators know everything, right? And so they're going to be there and they're going to they're gonna be able to teach and all this and the other. Well, it turns out the guy that they had um, identified, he came and he took the course, which makes sense, so he could understand what his students would be going through, and he failed. He failed the first test. They recycled him. He failed it again. Um, they tried to do it a third time, and they're just like, no, this isn't going to work. And so then they were like, like, Jen, you know this stuff. I'm like, yeah, how do you know this is an acquisition? It's like, it's my job to know this stuff. It's not just about my job to know like how the tech is and how it's for you guys using it. How do I make it better for you? I need to know your end of the world and stuff too. So starting to try and give people an appreciation for the career field that is program management. We have to know way more than just the tech. You have to know the contracts, you have to know the finance, you have to know the business side, you have to know the operations side, you have to know the industry side, the politics and all of those things in a weave. And that's one of the things when I, it was kind of first hitting me, like I love this kind of work and it's it's not just about the tech. And, and yes, I love the tech and there's wicked problems with the tech, but acquisition in, in of itself is a huge or wicked problem um, and that to bring all of those pieces and parts together, um, fascinating to me, uh, much more than just, you know, focusing on, on, um, on the hardware and bits and pieces. Um, so the, um, with that then, so I was at that in there, they graduated me up to, um, uh, the deputy for the mission directorate, so that basically supporting the whole school, um, things like that. But one of the big pieces and parts, um, that was, why uh, it was beneficial or in the cosmos for me to be in Colorado is when I had my kids. Um, so I had twins uh, while I was in Colorado. Um, 
they're now 16. It's kind of crazy for me to realize that. Um, but they, um, I don't think I would have had them if I had become a PEM in DC. So it's kind of interesting the way that your life like weaves through um, and you're set up in places to be where you're supposed to be um, at those times. So I have never worked another assignment in my life, um, even though I tried to do it twice and it failed miserably both times I did. Um, I just let it up to like, these are the places that I need to go and, and the places that I need to be um, in that respect. Um, because I was able to take that break and that pause and, um, and become a mother. And there's so much you learn from your children that I was able to then like apply back to the workforce and stuff too. Cause you got to realize like your kids don't know anything when they're growing up, you assume they do, but they don't. Um, and that's a lot of times what happens in the workforce too. People assume they know what's in your head trying to a way to interact, kind of communicate with them there. So I see that I, I promise that like this be a little bit more interactive. I'll take a little break here. So I'll see if there's any questions real quick. Still in the service when you, was your husband still in the service when you had your kids or? It, oh. Yeah. So, um, so I call my then husband because, you know, I'll, I'll flash forward. We did get divorced. Um, but uh, yes. And he actually served uh, 20 years himself. Oh, he was he was in the service at that time too. Both of you were in the service at the same time when yep. you were raising the kids. Yeah, yeah. So anything else? Okay, that's no, all good. Um, okay, so from there, um, I got to go, so I'm still in Colorado, uh, and I got to go to building one uh in Colorado Springs. Uh so that's uh, um space um um Air Force Space Command command building. Uh, and I did requirements for SIBRs, um at the time. And again, it was very interesting. I was the only acquisition. Actually, there was five of us acquisition people in the whole entire building of building one. And I'm like, that is such a huge foul. I can't even tell you because, again, most of the operators, they don't understand the business side. They don't understand why when they ask for something and something can't they, like they don't have anybody to help translate or understand like why is this being like this um or or is, is like i'm asking for is, is the tech even exist you know they because they don't look at that sort of stuff they just know their pain points and what they're trying to get through and, and stuff like that so again it was kind of like we need to bridge this gap more and so that's all these the things i was thinking in the back of my head we need to be able to talk to like all of the people the stakeholders that are in there in order to make something successful as we go forward it's not just um you know Throw, make a requirement, throw it over the fence. The acquisition guys write an uh, uh, an RFP or a contract, throw it over the fence to an industry folk, hope those guys make it right, throw it back to the acquisition people who try and deliver it. Like it doesn't work. It like I've seen it in spades um, and it just gets reinforced to me over and over again in, in my career that way. And it was very apparent when I saw a lot of the people in building one struggling, good humans, good intentions. Um, it just, that translation of how do I talk about the mission I need to do and the pain points I have in doing it and getting it to somebody who can understand and translate it into something that eventually becomes a, a product or a, a capability out there. So um, so from that, I was actually um, uh, pulled early um, to go to Air Command and Staff College. Um, so for those of you who don't know, it's um, intermediate service school. It's very, very competitive. They only send like the top 25% of the service in there. You go as about a major um, down to Alabama. Yay, Alabama. Um, so I went to, um, uh, so I, so my kids were one at the time. 
excuse me. And I pack up, I take the kids with me and I go to Alabama. My then husband stays in Colorado because we figured with the whole assignment system stuff, if he moves down to Alabama, then he has to stay there two years. I'm only going to be there one year, the whole joint spouse, blah, blah, blah. And it figured it'd just be easier if, um, he stayed and put in Colorado. I took the kids because if he had to go travel, you know, he could still do that, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that was actually a place where, um, because of that, so single mom, twin one-year-olds, school full-time, can't miss class because there is no excuses for missing class. It's your job to go do. Um, very interesting. So time management became very cr critical and crucial. Um, doing what actually made sense and not and not doing the stuff that doesn't make sense. Um, started learning a lot of those kinds of, of lessons and stuff there too. Um, but the one thing that struck me the most is where it's my connected. cousin one time told me um, she hadn't seen me in eight years. That's about how long I'd been married um, because I wasn't myself anymore because of the relationship that I was, that I was in. Um, I had kind of lost who I was and, and what I did with myself um, in favor of everybody else out there in a lot of sense. And one that was very eye-opening, um, and not only did it give me the courage to get out of that relationship, but it also gave me the courage to have that in my workspace as well. Um, there's a lot of times when I go, uh, look at my career and in you, especially even though in the later years, which I'll talk about that, um, you have to kind of stick up for yourself. Um, and I think as, as a female, especially that's something that we struggle with a lot, um, because we don't want to like rock a boat. We're always there. We're nurturing. We're there for other people. We're always more of the giving versus receiving in that respect. And it was one of those things like, no, I have value. I, I need to be my, I need to be me. I need to express me. And that was kind of the things that started to give me that, that courage and confidence to, to go forward with that there. Now, all that to say, too, is um, my then husband, he and I are still, we're good friends. We're just like, we're not good partners. <laughs> um, so he's he's been there, you know, throughout with the kids and everything like that. Um, but uh, it, 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 it wasn't a thing to be. Um, and so after I finished up um, Air Command and staff, moved up to D.C. because I finally got to become a PEM. I'm like, yay, I get to be a PEM. At this point, though, I thought I was going to be in space because I was already there, right? I had done GPS. I had NSSI. Um, I had done Building One. I was going to go over and I was going to be a, a PEM for space. And these folks actually didn't bid on me to go be a PEM for them. I'm like, huh, okay, well, that's interesting. So they, um, I got into um, AQI, which does a lot of, they do some command and control. They do a lot of the um, IT information system stuff. They do um, the... Um, UAVs are in there. It's kind of like a, it's almost like a, everything else gets thrown into AQI. Um, and originally I was supposed to go to One Division AQI to work on, it's probably Deems or something like that, which like, thank God we didn't have to work on that. <laughs> but um, it was supposed to be more IT-esque or, or something that, along that related. Um, but I actually had uh, an 06 pluck me out of there and based on my record alone, never had met them or anything. And I'm like, I don't, I still to this day, I ask her like, what did you ever see in my record? And she's like, you had, um, she, she said, she, like, you have commitment, you have passion. And I can see that in your record. And I needed somebody for the programs that she was, that they were responsible for. So I got to do um, what they call bacon. 
everybody loves bacon. Um, it's it's basically a, an aerial network aircraft that um, extends, you know, tactical aerial networks as well as ground and all of this. So I started getting into that world of that command and control and and networks and and um, and all that. And I'm like, dude, I'm a mechanical engineer. I like I don't do ones and zeros, but you know, hey, why not? So um, the uh, um, worked on bacon in there, um, was in there in about a year, for about a year. And then um, they pulled me to be um, deputy um, div chief for uh, the command and control division um, that was in there. That was primarily for um, AWACS, Global Hawk, uh, or, or not, excuse me, Global, AWACS, Joint Stars, all of the, um, all of the work that was in there. Um, the thing was, is the 06 that I was was um, working with was an operator type. He didn't know acquisition at all, like not even at all. So um, it relied on me to help run the organization from the acquisition perspective. Um, but he also, he would always joke, it's like WWJD, like what would Jen do, you know, from a, whenever he was in meetings on that. So, but I got him up to speed and he got in a better appreciation for when he needed to go back to folks too on what does this mean between the operator side and the acquisition side. Um, so the, um, so that was really exciting. And, and at this point, um, you know, starting to get to be known on, in the Pentagon, um, especially with the, the SAE, the, the service acquisition executive. Um, and at the time it was going to be some turnover. So I got, I got told, I got to interview up to, uh, the AQ front office. I'm like, okay, well, this will be fun. Um, at this point, my kids are three um maybe four three four four um and i go in to talk to general shackleford um really really super super guy um and and i knew i was going for the junior milicist position for aq which is a huge huge deal it's like a big stepping stone again to like further responsibilities and getting promoted and all of that sort of stuff i was like cool i can do this this is this is like i do this stuff in my sleep right so we're talking about and talking like I got this interview in the bag it's great and then he asked me about my hours and I'm like when do you need me he's like you know he's like at least seven to seven like every day I'm like you've got me that every other week I cannot do that when I have my kids because the way that my then husband and I worked it out was I had the kids one week he had the kids the other week we just dropped them off at daycare you know that kind of thing so I would pull whatever hours I needed to um, that, but the daycare only opens up at seven 30, you have to pick them up by five. So there was no way for me to have that job with the hours that was dictated. And I told him, like, this is like, I will be there for whatever, all the work will get done because that's who I am besides, but I can't physically be in the office during those times. He's like, okay, I appreciate that. And he used to say, I didn't get that job, but it was one of those things. Like, again, um, it hurt to some extent, because I don't feel like it would have had that same standard um, in other circumstances or with other applicants, um, or that people get asked that necessarily. Um, but I appreciate, like, you know, he was kind of honest in that respect too, but I was honest back. Um, it's like, you will have all of me, but this is my conditions in two, and I, I won't sacrifice those either. So um, with that though, a couple weeks later, there was a guy in the office who decided to drop his papers earlier than they expected. So another position opened up to be the CAG chief for AQ. 
Um, and Shackelford's like, Jen, you're taking this job. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> because that didn't dictate certain hours. I could do some amount of it at home and, and some of that work and stuff too. Um, and, but he still remembered and he still knew he wanted me on his team to just do and continue that work. And it just had a better fit for it. Um, got to learn a lot, got to see a lot um, and, um, and still progress there. So I'll pause again for a quick second. Susan, now is your time. Susan, you have questions. <laughs> It yeah, is perfect way. timing. Yes. Um, I had put in the chat earlier that you were re uh, relating all of these things that opportunities you had, and it didn't seem like there was any gender um, unfairness. And then you present this one and yeah, they wouldn't, yes, that wouldn't have happened to a guy. Um, so I am also an American Association of University Women member who has done STEM and STEAM encouragement for young girls since 1991. And the kinds of outreach that we're looking at now targets underrepresented. How do you address that in what you do in your in your job? So it's actually interesting because I was actually just telling somebody this the other day. I knew when I was six years old that I wanted to be in STEM. Um, STEM, STEAM, whatever, because I, I actually blend a lot of, I do a lot of artsy crap too. I don't know why. I, my brain's my brain's weird. Um, and and really a lot of it was from my mom that gave me the encouragement because she never said I couldn't do that. Even though like I didn't have much friends when I grew up because I was too smart. Um, and, and even... Um, you know, I was the only girl in a lot of my classes because I was in mechanical engineering. Actually, I have a really funny, <laughs> I don't know if I should tell this story. I, this is, is actually at UD. I went to like an orientation and this is another gender thing too. Um, I went to orientation and they showed us a video or a slideshow because they didn't really have videos. <laughs> um, and all of the pictures in the, in there were guys, like there were no girls at all in, in any of the, of the presentation material that they had. And I'm like, okay, uh, do you guys have any girls that go here? I'm like, I'm all for it. I only, I always grew up and played with guys anyway, so I never really had girlfriends um, besides. And uh, sorry, this is a, what my mom calls a Jenny story. I, I, I promise I'll get back to you. Um, but uh, the guy was like, oh, I didn't even realize we didn't have any girls in there. Well, yes, we do have some women. Like, there's the fewest are in civil engineering and it's like, oh, I can understand that. I don't like playing in dirt a whole lot either. I'm um, sorry, I'm like, I joke. Um, the next is mechanical engineering, you know, because most of them were working on cars. Like, okay, I love my car, by the way. Um, the next one, uh, most was electrical engineering. I'm like, I can, I can see that. And then he's like, the most of them though are in chemical engineering. I'm not sure why. I think that reminds them of baking. My mom was pissed. She's like, you're not going to this school. Like you can't be around these people. This is like atrocious that anybody would actually make a comment or, or be in that respect. Um, but she always was like, I, I obviously I did end up going in there. They gave me the most money between <laughs> the scholarships they had and my RTC scholarships. Um, but it really, a lot of it came from home. I didn't have encouragement from schools or from outreach, like those things didn't exist. Uh, I think there was a women in engineering program that Dayton actually did have that I went for like one week in school, like during high school um, to go with that in there. Um, but it's, it's the, it's almost the personal interaction and touch and encouragement that I try and do when I talk and I, and I see people and it, it has to happen younger than anybody really. If it's high school, it's already almost too late. 
um, if I hadn't had some of the, I, I used to love, uh, well, I still love astronomy and all of that. I had a librarian, I read every book in the library and she would purposely buy me books just for me because I was, I wanted to read more about astronomy stuff. Um, and it's those kind of people who do like those individual actions and kind of give that, that, and I know that's not, it's not easy to mass produce that. It's not easy to like, um, you know, cookie cutter that either. But to me, that that personal encouragement and touch is is way more important than a lot of of kind of these generic kind of programs that I've seen. I hope that answers your question. It does. I'm sitting here laughing. <laughs> I'm the oldest of four daughters, grew up in the '50s, and my dad didn't know that we weren't supposed to know how to use all different kinds of screwdrivers and help him finish the basement. Yep. So. And my mom painted the house and did all the yard work and did everything she did and got picked on for that. But yeah, yeah. so I have a similar background. Of course, I'm older than you, but yeah. Not and it's funny you said that because my youngest sister, we thought, amazing. She's a chemical engineer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the baking. Right. No, Enough for me, funny. but yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. My now husband, like when the kids need something, like they'll go to him first, which is kind of funny. I mean, he's handy, but, but, he, but he'll immediately say, go to your mom. She knows how to solder. Like she solders better than I do, you know, so it, it's things like that. Um, and just kind of that encouragement. And, and it's actually to the point, it's really interesting. Um, my kids, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll diverse a little bit. Um, I think they were in fourth or fourth grade. Um, and there was like a coding camp for girls um, that was being um, offered at the school. And the one child comes up to me and you know, boys and they're like, I want to code. Why can't I be in this? I'm like, he's like, well, this isn't fair that you guys get your own and I don't get one. And I'm like, okay, can we take a step back? Why do you think that this needs to exist? And I had to realize too, it's like, he's only ever seen me and like his experience of, of, female in a tech role is me and to him it wasn't like you, you rock mom like why would you have to have something that encourages you or sets you apart or like gives you that kind of thing so I had to tell him like there, there I'm weird again but there's there's a lot that's out there that isn't equal or that people need a safe environment for those so that they don't feel like they can they should be or need to be picked on um because they have an interest in interest in coding so then it was like okay he got that the teaching moment but i'm hoping then with this, my kids like if they end up having children and both genders even like it, the encouragement is there regardless of their gender um or whatever they identify as it's it's there as the support as a human like you have a brain you have um value you have that that capacity to give to the community that should be encouraged regardless of of anything that's associated with them so um yeah yes questions? and it needs to start young as you said yeah. the research is out there at least by fifth grade yep before other things happen so thank you yeah. so much for your comments yeah no worries uh daniel daniel uh mr mclister uh, you post a question in Q&A. Can you speak out? Your mic is enabled. Can you hear me now? Yep, gotcha. Great. Uh, I'm an old guy uh, that did some of the things you did and saw the uh, battle between acquisition and operation. So my question is, have we made some progress and can the operators speak to the acquisition people and vice versa? I will get to that a little bit later in my life. 
but yes, I'll, I'll talk, I'll talk to that too. But yeah, that's a very good question. Cause it's a short answer. It's still a struggle, but it's getting a little bit better, but I'll talk to some of the things that, that I did throughout my career to help that too. Thank you. Yep. All right. So CAC chief for AQ, um, at that point, I didn't, everybody's starting to get their uh, material leader assignments or notions. I'm like, I have no idea where I'm going to go for this because why would I? Um, like I said, I've already started to do multiple mission threads, not part of any one community exclusively. Um, and at that point, I got um, picked up again by another of six. I didn't know who they were either at all um, to go to the base IT infrastructure um, program. Uh, up, at bon up at Boston in Hanscom. Um, so I packed up the kids, um, single mom again, and I take over my ML position, which um, I lived on base on purpose because they had all the facilities there. I had always off lived off base um, before that, but you know they had the daycare, they had the school, they had the blah, blah, blah. Um, Cause again, I'm like, I just need to keep these kids alive. I need to try and do the best job I can do um, and, and just kind of go forth and press. The, um, and and the really super hard thing, there was no support system up there. Not for me, anyway. Um, I didn't have any family, I didn't have any friends, I didn't know anybody. Um, and it it was it was a hard, it was a hard couple few years of just kind of like slogging it through, um, doing what you can, um, and 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 whatnot. So um I know everybody has like their own experiences with MLs or with their with their commands and stuff like that. Um Again, the big thing I I took away from that half of the experience was I am stronger than than I think. Sometimes I can do hard, I can manage, I can do things. Uh, my kids are still alive, yay! Um, you know, for better or worse, there and um, and I was actually still able to do a good job. Um, the kind of interesting thing from the job itself. So you're learning IT. So base IT infrastructure, 186 spaces around the world. Um, we had to outfit them with all of their IT. So <laughs> the hashtag fix my computer is very real to me. I, I get it. I understand it. We would always put the networks in at, at the base level only. That's not the only part of the bigger, broader infrastructure that there is in the Air Force for it. But I was in charge of the base side. Um, but when I get into the job, the guy I took over from, um, he's an interesting person. He... Let's just say he didn't do a lot. Um, he's like, you know, we've got, we got about 160 bases done or 150, 130. They were 80% done, something like that. Um, there's not much for you to do around here. You can just, you know, kick up and just like write out your command. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's just not me, you know. So I'm looking at it and, and I ask people like, okay, so we get done in the next year. Uh, what's next? And they're like, what do you mean what's next? I'm like, do we go back to the all the first base we were there? Like like what what's next and they're like oh we never thought like, how do you not think about that you know um so then i part of me was then okay how do i do the strategic roadmap for taking care of and oh by the way they didn't visit a base for eight to ten years so think about like the time they would the tech that's on the base from the first base that we went to versus and 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 like no wonder the people are crying and swirly blue screens of death and and all that like there has to be a better way to shorten that down to get tech out and faster to folks and, and whatnot and then within that too the the way that they had set up, i still giggle about this too the way they had set up the um the contract was that they had them in two separate contracts they did a hardware contract so the purchase for the hardware and then they did a separate contract which was 
ironically, a sole source back to who they bought the contract, bought the hardware from, for all the maintenance and support associated with the hardware. And so what certain companies did, Cisco, what they would give away their hardware and then rape the government on the on the maintenance and the um and the the service agreements that they had on on the other side. And like this is this is not working for me. Like where's the life cycle management piece of this? Where is the end-to-end integration or the thought process of why like so I canceled all of the well, actually, I didn't cancel. The contracts that were there were still there, but everything going forward, we're like, we're doing one full contract. It's for both hardware and for all of the the SLAs and the maintenance and the sustainment and all of that sort of thing. And what happened, ironically, Cisco was no longer the cheaper option. You know, go figure. Um, when people actually took the holistic view of what the system was and how it was generated. Um, <clears throat> so then we started pulling in uh, the Cisco lost a lot. Actually, I was one of the only, I was one of nine material leaders. I had an ACAT-1 program in the whole Air Force. Um, and so that actually would lock me into a four-year job. Um, and uh, at about year three, or actually year two, because I'm like, okay, you know, um, I'm going to be here for a couple more years, uh, two and a half. I'm going to get out there. You know, I've been dedicating all my time to my work and to my kids. I needed some time for me because I was going, I was going crazy. Um, I needed some me time. So I actually reconnected with one of my friends. I didn't know we were, we lived on the same dorm floor in college. Um, and I met up with her at a, at a UD basketball game. That was the year they went to the elite eight. Um, so I went to a watch party, um, in Boston and connected with her and we ended up like having a lot of fun. I still talk to her a lot. Um, and, but I also met, um, wonderful, wonderful man. Um, his name is Andy. He's my now husband. Um, he, he, uh, I, I just, yeah, he's, he's good. Um, it was one of those things though, that, um, we met in January of 15. Um, and by July of 15, we were married. Um, it was one of those things like it kind of is one of those things, you know, you knew he always supported. One of the big things was, was that in April of 15, um, I got short term notice, like you're going to air war college. I'm like, oh, well, that's good. So I go and tell because he had already was when um, Boston had their 189 inches of snow and uh, he came over to hang out and then never left kind of thing because he couldn't leave. Um, and he had basically moved in on March 31st, gave his keys up April 1st. I get 
notice I'm going to school. And I, I go tell him, it's like, it's not April Fool's joke. And it's uh, like, you're getting deployed. I'm like, no. And he's like, you got school. I'm like, yes. He's like, all right, let's go. I'm like, it's in Alabama. And uh, he's like, I've been there before. I'm like, okay um and then you know one thing he's like married i'm like okay fine and then we end up you know hauling and going down to alabama he has been the most supportive person ever um he and and i didn't realize how much i needed something like that um to be with me until he kind of came along and he's always been a hundred percent you know equal partner never um it's actually my first husband told me he never wanted me to make 06 because he didn't think I could be a good mom and a good officer at the same time. Um, never heard anything like that from my now husband. Um, and so that sometimes you just need that, again, that that kind of uplifting and, and, and pull there. So um, so go to Air War College, um, had, a, had a blast, <laughs> probably because I didn't do, I, I, I did my coursework, but I, I didn't care about it as much I again I did what I needed to do and I didn't do the stupid stuff that didn't make any sense you know like where's the value in this I'm not going to do it um but I still learned a lot made some great friends we had time there um from that went back up to um DC um because at this point I was still in 05 um it's pretty much I hadn't met my 06 board, but if you go to Air War College, again, it's highly collect, uh, highly selective. The only top 15% go to school there. Um, and I knew, you know, by intents and purposes, I was just in a holding pattern until my 06 board goes. So they put me in joint staff. Um, I was in what they call GIADO. Um, I don't remember what it stands for, but it was um, missile, it was um, missile defense kinds of, kinds of stuff that they had in there. And, um, Again, the only acquisition person in the whole office on the joint staff in the J-8 um, section there, um, in, the, in our section of J-8, um, and uh, a bunch of operators, you know, think Thad and, um, um, oh, what's the other crazy one, Patriots, um, that sort of stuff. Anyway, they put me on global, global missile defense. Nobody gives a poo about global because they're always worried about the combatant command. Um, and what is being done in their particular combatant command AOR. And I'm like, has anybody ever thought about the fact that, oh, I don't know, Iran and Israel are in two different combatant commands. How are you guys going to talk to each other? How are you guys going to hand off things to each other? How are you, like nobody again thinking of the strategic picture or view about how do you cross different combatant commands. Um, but again, um, I have no work because nobody does anything with global. Um, and I get the the dregs from the guys who were assigned to a specific um, COCOM um, when they were too busy or they didn't want to work on that particular project. Just give it to Jen. She'll, you know, we'll give it to her to do. And so um, I spent a lot of time in front of the Dunkin' Donuts in the Pentagon reading books and doing that thing because, again, didn't have much to do. I've always been, it was one of my, it's probably the second worst assignment, I'll, I'll be honest, that I had. Um, but I also, I learned a lot. I, again, one of the, the big things, so I finally did get a project that somebody gave me that they didn't want to do. And it had to do with Korea. Um, and they basically um, had been pitched that if you integrate, like integrate Thad and the Patriots, because um, then, you know, you can protect each other, command and control, blah, 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 blah. And it was only going to be $20 million. Okay, um, so the COCOM comes back, they submit um, an urgent request to have it done and evaluated. And so then I go back and I'm like, 
what are you trying to accomplish? And they're like, well, we want this integrated. I'm like, to what end? Like, for what reason? And they're like, well, so that we can cover more targets. And I'm like, okay, that's that's a good reason. Have you guys thought about other solutions that could give you that same thing that might be cheaper? They're like, no, we want this. And I'm like, okay, so I did, I went to do some math and I did like the, it, it actually turned out where the THADs were located because they also wanted to be able to protect the THADs. Where the THADs were located, there wasn't anything at the time the Koreans could actually get towards um, too. So it's like, okay, that's kind of a weak argument because they're not going to take you out. But say to the more, you're only at a 17% increase on if you do some of this connectivity that you're talking about. And which nobody had done that analysis to see like how much more protection are you going to have of the of the different sites? And so then, then they're like, okay, oh, this gen person keeps asking all these questions. Um, and so then it's not 20 million because then we realize the networks in Korea can't handle command and control at the speeds that they want it to, that they need to be able to do to integrate these two things. So you'd have to like outfit the whole country of Korea to be able to, to redo this. And oh, by the way, the integration work is so much harder than we thought. And oh, by the way, this, that, and the other. And it turned out that the bill got up to... I want to say $750 million by the time they were starting to pull in all of these pieces and parts from the first requirement that said, I want to integrate Patriots and Thads. Um, and so again, I go back and this is a little bit with the, um, with the, the discussion of like why an acquisition officer can be valuable um, to an organization, to a thought process, because there's all these unknown unknowns. There's all these things that when you throw a requirement out there, um, if you just take it verbatim, and there's a lot of acquisition people who just take it and say, I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. You asked for it without doing some of that critical analysis or like, what is the outcome or the goal you're actually trying to achieve? Not just this particular, um, you know, particular thing that, that goes through. Um, so at that point though, I got, um, I made 06, like all this was happening. And so they had to, they actually had to move me. I have no idea what actually ever happened to that whole case, but I put the business case to them of what, what was going on with it because then they moved me over to OSD. Um, and so I was working for the DASD um, for space um, at that time as I finally got a mill assist job there um, to do that for about a year. Um, so I got, so I was like, again, I was kind of surprised, like, where were they going to throw me for 06? So, and they put me in space again, like, you know, I don't do space stuff. I haven't done space in forever. Um, but they're like, fine, this is just mill assist. You're just, you know, babysitting the organization. I'm like, okay, fine. So did that, got up to speed on a lot of the things and projects that were going on there. And then it comes up time for me to be, um, selected for a senior material leader. And again, uh, not knowing who or where I was going to go because I didn't feel like I belonged to any one particular community. Um, in general, I just, I've done everything for all of them. And so it's kind of a big surprise when I got picked up to come here to Los Angeles. Um, and I was going to take over a program called JMS at the time, which is a couple of dirty letters um, in there to try and, and fix that. It happened to be JMS was still an OSD oversight program. Uh, so I got to see it from the DASD point of view when I was still up at, at um, OSD. So I knew what I wanted to do to the program <laughs> before I even got to the actual office because I had been prepping for almost a year um, while I was waiting for my assignment to kind of kick in. And so that's when, when um, you mentioned um, the uh, probably one of the bigger things I guess I might be known for um, from the um, thing. I go into JMS and um, I, I always go in, when I go into a new office, I always do um, 
interviews with every person that works there, or every government, because you can't always do that with the contractors for multiple reasons, but every government person um, go in there and and have an, an entrance interview with. And um, one of the lieutenants I talked to, he thought his job was watching contractors write acquisition documents. Um, and captain I had told me, he's like, I don't think it's worth my even talking to you because I volunteered to deploy because I'd rather get out of this office than be here. And, and I had a lot of similar stories like that. And I'm like, okay, people don't know what their job is and their morale sucks like super huge. So that was a big challenge. Just even besides the fact that nobody delivered anything on, on JMS and in, in forever. So, um, the, the one thing I always, um, going through my career too, and a lot of things, and I was starting to really recognize it, especially when they gave me JMS, um, was uh, they liked me to go in to fix things. Uh, most of the jobs that I was in was something was wrong and they needed something corrected, fixed, whatever, brought back on a good path, that sort of thing. And it really like was a big challenge with when I first stepped into JMS. So what I did is I, I let all the contracts expire. Um, yeah, I didn't renew any options. It was like kind of in the perfect timing of that. So I canceled JMS by the fact I didn't continue it. Um, and they're like, you can do that. I'm like, yeah, I'm the government. I can do that. Um, and, and it's like, and well, how do you have authority? Like you hired me as the program manager. You gave me the authorities the day you hired me. I'm taking them. Um, and again, that part of the mindset people don't always realize or own, which is something else I try and help encourage folks like you have more authority than you have. It's like, do you have the courage to exercise them? So um, with that, um, I'm like, hey, there's this great thing called Agile out there. You know, we're going to convert over into to Agile. What's what's Agile? And so I we went full bore into, into Agile. And when I went to Dr. Roper and I gave him the whole plan of what I had done uh, or what I was cooking up in my brain because Kessel Run was already established, but they were only about six months old or so at the time. But I had been watching them from OSD or because I'd already been seeing some of the things that was going on. Again, synthesizing lots of different trends that were happening within the government or within different pockets of people. How can I pull all that stuff together to make something what eventually came, became KM? Um, and, and I told him what I was doing. I didn't ask him what I was doing. I told him, this is what's going to make this happen and go forth. And he's like, great, got it. Go forth and do great stuff. Just come up with a cool name. I'm like, okay. Because I didn't make up KM at that time. So my my now husband and I, we were like brainstorming and I popped into my brain Kobayashi Maru. Like, so does anybody know what the reference is to Kobayashi Maru? What's the reference? Captain Kirk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's a it's a training exercise all Starfleet cadets have to go through in order to see how to handle a no-win situation, um, which I definitely felt like I was in when I was thrusted into JMS. Um, but the one thing, so Captain Kirk, he comes along and he changes the conditions of the scenario. He basically rewrote the software in order for him to be able to win. And I was like, that's what I want this office to know and realize, like, it isn't the same. Think about the problem differently. How do you get to where you need to go to win? How do you do software differently? The whole like coding piece kind of tying in there. Um, so you go in so that you can go in and do that. Um, and so like the name was to me was perfect of like how to shift the organization in order to get them to rally around a purpose, a vision, a something they could be proud of and actually getting towards 
the next element of acquisition that never really gets um, highlighted, but should be a part of cost schedule performance. We have people, but it should also be delivery. We don't deliver something. It doesn't matter. It, it like, if the operators don't want to use it again, it doesn't matter. So have, keeping that in the mindset though, of like, I'm here to deliver, not just watch a program and follow an acquisition checklist changes how you actually make decisions on acquisition and how you move forward to talking to people and getting, getting those things through. So that was one of the, the big thrusts of like agile is focuses all on delivery. How do you get it out there? How do you get decision maker? How do you get information back to make decisions to course correct if you need to? And then back to the point um, with the question before it was a whole, I, I was like, I cannot do this unless I have the operators talking to me on a near daily basis to be able to actually get to them what they want and what they need. And it took, it took a long time because it was a mind, because all the operators are like, want to talk to you. And it's like, you guys suck your acquisition. And I'm like, if you give me five minutes, I will give you an hour. Like I relieve a pain point in your time. And once they started realizing that and had that trust and they realized that that dialogue actually then they were asking me like, oh, can I tell you about this? And, you know, there was one, they, um, one application we delivered, they're like, ooh, that font size is like a little, they were like offhanded comment. That font size is a little small. It's a little hard to read. And the guy, the coder was like sitting right there and he like punched it up. He's like, is that good? And he's like, that would have taken me six months to have gotten that change made. He's like, and you did it in like two seconds. I love you, you know? So it's part of that, that trust of like the communication and the people that you need to bring in to get the things done and then actually doing and delivering back to them so that they know that you can be trustworthy and, and you're you're there for their best interests and things too. So that was a lot of the things with with KM. Um there's a lot of a lot of lessons, a lot of thing I um it was interesting because when I started obviously nobody ever thought we would do any like is a doomed program JMS was. People have been trying to replace the portions of it for eons and eons. Um, I think they let me do what I was doing because um, they didn't think it could get any worse. So like, we'll just let Jen try this and we'll see how it goes. Um, and and it was, I I mean, I did things like the day I write, I, I canceled Mark, like I'm doing another Mark. And they're like, what do you mean you have to? I'm like, Nobody reads them. I've been on air staff and OSD staff. Nobody reads, the only people who read them are AQX because they have to collect them. But nobody makes a decision on them. It's old stale, it gets watered down. Like there's no value in this anymore. So I challenge people on like, again, what are you doing that does that creates value or not creates value um, to go forward? And um, it's actually surprising when you push on things a little bit, um, you see what is actually important to folks. Um, just relying that the same thing that you've done always, like anybody tells me like, well, this is the way we've always done it. I was like, you need to leave my aura right now because it's obviously not servicing you anymore. Like just because you always did it, it's not moving you forward to where you need to go. Um, not to say that I didn't have a lot of pushback in some ways too. Um, people didn't know what agile was. People didn't know how to manage or oversee agile. I'm like, unless you're in the office, you're going to be old dated information. Like I can't, I'm already like sick. I'm already like this light years ahead of you, no pun intended. Um, by the time you're even reviewing it again. And so there's a whole, like, how do you manage? And I, and I probably didn't do that well myself, um, honestly, because 
when I'd go to air staff or OSD staff, and they were struggling. They didn't know how to talk this. They didn't know how to oversee this. They didn't know they were feeling threatened because they thought their jobs were gone now because like Jen doesn't need us to tell us that she sucks anymore, you know, because I have old information now and she's already this far ahead and, and she's already made decisions that I would have maybe told her if I knew what I was talking about kind of stuff. So I didn't probably manage all of those people very well because I then had other people trying to undermine me and take it down and get me fired and, and all of that while I was in KM besides, even though we had so much success with actually delivering and giving capability to the warfighter, it, the people part, um, was always, we got to be kind of a big challenge with that. Um, with that there, like, you know, obviously with KM, there was the data, there was the, um, we did with that. There was the, um, I helped write 5000.87, which is the acquisition pathway for software. I helped with congressional language, with the appropriations for software. So there's like a lot of things that, that uh, I'm super proud of that I hope help helping people that are coming past me to be able to make their lives a little easier, even though it sucked in the moment <laughs> a lot of times when I was like physically there. But a lot of it that was there too was the cybersecurity piece. Um, because one of the other big focuses on it, because um, I had seen it in a lot of other things, people would bolt on security, right? And I'm like, in KM, we're going to bake it in right from the start. It's going to be part of the pipeline. If they can't pass the pipeline with the security elements intact, it's not going to get pushed into prod. So they changed the mindset of like how they were building and how they were doing it besides. And then they would realize like, oh, this security stuff isn't actually all that super hard. You just have to integrate and balance it with the functionality in there. And it's a, it's a symbiotic package. Like if you're, uh, I would always tell the, I took my kid, I called my kids because by this point I could like actually mother some of the kids that were in my office. Um, uh, I would tell my kids like, if the, if something from a security perspective you get you get hacked or taken and your software gets taken down or any of that gets taken down your functionality just went to zero you have no ability to do your mission or anything like that anymore so how do you think about your availability then um in conjunct between cyber and with um uh functionality in order to keep your system and your mission up and running and going so that was kind of one of the big focuses there and so when i was moved up to the CIO office for Space Systems Command. That was a lot of the things that um, we tried to push within, excuse me, our cybersecurity sector that we had within um, the CIO. So that office when I went to the CIO was uh, another very toxic environment that I walked into. The previous leadership was very um, demeaning, demoralized to the point where one of, of um, folks actually had to go in like mental health care for several months because of the the trauma that was in the office. Um, so to help clean that, but also the CIO to be more like how industry actually views and sees the CIO. The government side, it's really more about policymaking and it gets very detached from execution or who are doing the acquiring. That's why there's a lot of challenges, I think, on the Air Force side because it's bifurcated between multiple offices. Um, so I tried to bring all that together, doing the IT, the the tooling, the cybersecurity, the data, the software, kind of like how all that gets focused around and ultimately helping um, the PEOs because they're my customers, right? You're supposed to be here. That's another thing, like being customer focused um, and helping relieve their pain points like that is my job. That's what I thought my job was as a PM as well. When I was in at Kobayashi Maru, it's like, 
you are my customer. I need to deliver to you. What is it that we need? Let's have the conversation and let's get to where, where we need to go. And again, that's not where I think a lot of program managers look and take it. And, um, but it could make us such huge strides in the capabilities we're trying to, to go and deliver if that customer focus and that relationship actually happens. So going back to that question earlier about like, are we doing that any better from a operator talking to acquisition or the operator's understanding? There's pockets. Um, I think the stuff with KM, they still do talk to their users to some extent. Um, I've been pushing to have the PEOs and then the, um, the, the Spock Delta commanders talk to each other like on a more frequent, consistent basis so that they actually understand um, the POs can take back, like have that communication flow of like, hey, are we delivering what you need? What are you trying to get to your mission? And then keeping the eye on like, what's the strategic bigger system of systems as it's kind of going through. There's, they're kind of starting to, but it's still very stovepiped in my opinion, um, at least on the, the Space Force side that I've been able to see lately. I think until we can get over some of those hurdles, and and how and it's not about them sitting next to each other writing seeing each other write code or like it, it's it's more about, about the that interaction and the conversation to understand what is the pain point not just throw things over the fence or read us uh, capabilities document and assume you know what it means and even the way you write requirements should be about the effect you're trying to create not integrate that and patriots you know um, what is it you're ultimately trying to get at and I think a lot of times people don't know. Um, they don't know what the realm of the possible is. And unless you have those conversations and, and take those minutes to breathe and have that, it, it's going to, you're, we're still spiral around or kind of walking with their chickens with a head cut off um, in some respect to that. So, all right. I'm going to pause there again. Is that like pretty much my career <laughs> as it goes through? But any questions? I know I talked, I know I promised you guys I was going to be more interactive, but sometimes I get excited and I do appreciate the questions that you guys did have and stuff too. Um, going back to, uh, I think it's great that you um, had kids. Kids, of course, are wonderful. Um, and, um, you know, uh, previous generations, you know, I'm good friends with. Uh, General Retired Ellen Polakowski, and mm -hmm. she tells a story about how Wilma Rudolph said, well, you can't have kids and be successful in the Air Force. And I know things have obviously changed since sure. she was, but I'm, I'm kind of curious your perspective, like, you know, how, you know, how did you feel about Because there probably were still people saying that to you. And of course, you know, from a life, quality of life and with family being important, you know, you, you kind of feel like, no, this is the right thing to do. But um you know, I'm kind of curious about your thoughts in terms of people, because uh, I think there's still some folks that don't yeah. have a career instead of having kids. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. what your perspective on that? No, I know. Um, so there's, there's kind of a, a, a couple things. So my, my kids have taught me a lot um, about myself and, and, and I still struggle a lot of times, like whether or not I'm a good mom. Um and stuff because I know I, I'm not a nor I'm not a normal mom, um, or at least not not what people portray as you know. The 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 gals who can be stay at home moms, I have like the utmost respect. I am not a stay at home mom by any stretch. My kids, they they know I like they know when I need to go back to work. Like mom, you're too cranky, go away, you know. But I also think that the stuff that I, from my career side brings into them perspectives that they never would have had if I had been a more traditional mom 
in that respect. Um, I will say I, I, I do always doubt, you know, whether I did good on either front or enough on either front. Um, but I, I like to chalk that up to being a human thing than just, you know, the societal pressures of it per se. Um, the, it's actually interesting too, because the, um, and this kind of goes back to one of the other comments or questions. Um, I never felt so undervalued and undermined and um, hitting a glass ceiling as I did when I made 06. A lot of times throughout my whole career, I was like, you know, either I was, I was encouraged or they let me go. They knew I was to let Jen go do. I never back if that was people like my leadership protecting me and I didn't realize it or know it at the time per se. Um, but like when I made 06 and there was a couple of things, like I had, I had one individual, it was not pretty. I mean, this was like an air staff level person who had his, his hair, hair, um, his sights up and did everything imaginable to try and get me fired. And I knew it. And I would go to, I, to my boss. I'm like, dude, I need help. And they're like, you're going to figure it out. I figure out a lot. Of, I do a lot without you ever knowing or needing or any of that. And I, I don't ask for help unless I really need it. And that was very demoralizing because um, your, your, your leadership should be there and shouldn't and foster that. And so then I felt like a crappy officer then like, how can I not be getting this stuff done if they're expecting I should get it done? I'm like, this is not a normal environment. You know, this is not a normal person. I can handle a lot. I have handled a lot through my whole life. I'm a girl. <laughs> we, we, we learn to suck it, you know, in a lot of ways and just take it. And like, this is not, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking. And so, um, it's, but, and it, while it's still, um, it's still a thing, you know, obviously I can't forget that time and it had a lot of emotional drain, um, out of me. Um, I look at it, I was like, it gave me another, gave me another, like, how do I synthesize with everything? Like the next thing I do, how am I going to account for that piece? Or how am I going to talk to people differently? Or how do I be at peace with myself when these things are like, and that's one of the things like, so I, I did start my own company when I, when I um, retired and part of it was because I was like, I'm going to pick and choose the problems I want now, you know, and if you're drama, I don't want you and I like you. So let me help you out. And I wanted to be able to help everybody out, you know, in that respect. So um, just even my path going forward in that um, was shaped a lot with some of the things of like, you know, being a mom, because now I can be, I can be stable. I can stay in LA. My kids are happy because they can get through high school. So I'm doing some good, I get some good mom points there. Right. But then I also, from a career perspective, like I can still do and shape and be the, the things I want to. So it's also helped me kind of navigate to the point that I'm in now too. I hope that answers. You decide on the name of your company. You decide, <laughs> see, I'm kind of curious about yeah, no. So, uh, so just like when, um, when my now husband and I were talking about uh, trying to name Kobayashi Maru, um, we sat down and brainstormed again. Cause like, okay, you gotta get a name for this. And I, I know I threw out something. I don't remember what it was. It must've sucked though. Cause my husband's like, what? Um, but he's like, he's like plan Z. I'm like, He's like, well, you know, because people go through plan A and then plan B. And then I'm like, they just need to come to you. You're the last one. They just 
plan Z. Just, just go there. So that's kind of where it came from. Um, so I have a question. Um, so it seems like um, later on in your career, you got um, scouted for opportunities. Um, I'm wondering. Oh, um, hello? Yeah. Okay. So I'm wondering, like, earlier in your career, um, how did you, like, navigate and receive those promotions and um, uh, basically just really build up a reputation as to what you wanted to be? Yeah. Um, so it's actually interesting. Um, so one of the things as a, as a colonel in, um, in the military, you, um, one of your additional duties, uh, is to sit on promotion boards or, um, school boards or, you know, those kinds of things like that. And you get to read hundreds and hundreds of records and evaluate all of the records of the people that you see and score them. And the scale is from six to a 10, six meaning this below, way below average and 10 meaning like the, the second coming of Christ. Right. Um, and so, Every time, sorry, again, this is another little Jenny story. Um, every time I was sitting on those boards, which I volunteered for those every chance I could, because again, that was another way for me to help and shape and mold folks. Because if I saw a person like, you know, they were like, hey, maybe these guys need encouragement or these guys are on a really good, like I would try and reach out or talk to, or at least when I mentored other folks, like I would know the lay of the lands and stuff. So, but every time I would go to those boards and stuff, I would reread my own records to be like, like I just read this kid's record and they are so much more put together than I ever felt I was like, how would my, how would I rate my record to them? Right. And, um, interestingly, when I look at my Lieutenant records and my first captain or two, um, I would have given myself a six and a half uh, if scoring that record, like I was not probably anybody, anybody would have thought, um, to put me on a path anywhere. Um, that's my own um, assessment of how I had it. It wasn't really until I got to GPS. Now realize I didn't come to LA because of my own merit. It's because my then husband was an astro engineer and he wanted to work in space. And so, and nobody volunteers to come to LA. I'm, I'm just like, especially two captains They're like, it's, it's hard to get captains to come here because <clears throat> a lot of them are starting families or like it's expensive, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I was pulled to LA because of him, basically, which was fine. I was like, I liked space. I wanted to be an astronomer when I was little. So I was kind of getting back to, to some sort of roots. Um, and it wasn't until um, I was told to interview for the GPS exec, which I have no idea, again, why or how my name was tossed up. I think, well, actually probably I do. Nobody wants to volunteer for that stuff either. Usually you have to throw your name, everybody throws their names in or every division has to throw a name in and mine got thrown in. Right. But I go and I interview with the 06 there and, and I'm like, and I told him, I was like, yeah, I'd be interested in it. I kind of, you know, would like to know and understand, you know, more, um, strategically what's going on. And like, I think I can help here. And I'm like, we're talking and, and all this stuff and the other, but I told him like my timeline was like, I wanted to work in this job another one year and then go to, um, and then be exec, you know, the following year, not this one year. Um, cause execs are only one year job cause they, they burn you out. Um, and I'm like, okay. And, I'm, and it's like, all right, I'm probably not getting picked, but you know, I had a good conversation at least now the O6 knows who I am, blah, blah, blah. And I get back to my desk and two minutes later and the announcement comes that I'm at, I'm going to be, I was picked as the exec. I'm like, huh, well, that's interesting. Cause I was getting ready to work on my one project. And, um, that 
job and the chance that that colonel took on me is what I think flipped my career. Um, not because I didn't have the the ability, because I did when I was that lieutenant and captain. But if you remember, like I was in the lab in an office that no lieutenant should be in. I was at school, but I had to pretend I was still in the lab because I went back door to school. I was at Barksdale, which was like a horrid assignment, and there was nobody ever um, pushing or promoting me there either. So it wasn't until I got to GPS and had somebody like realize I had some value and worth that, and and then it was me. Um, you know, my mom always because I always I always would struggle. Like, are they picking me because I'm a girl or because I'm I'm qualified? And my mom's like, that's on them. Why they choose what you do with it is on you. And so that's why it's like I any door that they open, I kick it, I kick it wide open and do what I need to do. And so from then on, it, it's always I do the best job in the job that I'm in. Um, and and I would go and um, <laughs> I actually heard a phrase. It actually, was really the I, I kind of like I heard it the other the other week that somebody said any job that my boss is interested in fascinates me. Um, and so like anything you can do to make them good and anticipate what they need. And again, thinking of that bigger strategic picture than just the, like your tactical myopic sort of thing helps them. Um, I had one boss who um, I didn't know about this until, you know, later when I was getting, when I got promoted and he, he got up and, and said a couple of words. Um, it was, I think it was on my first day and I get a problem and, and he was all like, um, and I get, I read the email. I'm like, it's my first day. I don't know the dynamics of this office. I know what I should do. Or like, I have an inkling of what I want to do with this problem to solve it. Um, and I wait, like, should I go talk to some, like, should I ask for permission or just do it and just tell them about it later and get yelled at if it, you know, blows up. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to bother. I know they're busy, you know, there are SESs and stuff. Like, I'm just going to go do it. And I did it and I let him know it after the fact. And he was so grateful because he was tired of everybody asking him for every little decision. And that's why I said, like, take ownership. They put you in a job for a reason. They want you to do the work for a reason. Um, and so when you're always going back, it's like those people who go back and ask about everything sometimes don't get noticed as much as the people who take the ownership and responsibility and then, like, move things forward or at least now I'm not saying go behind their back and don't let them know. And, you know, all of that sort of thing. Cause like I said, I let my boss know like, Hey, this is the problem. I did this. I'm just letting you know, if somebody comes and yells at you later, so you can yell at me later, um, which he was a good courtesy. Right. But at least he could see, I could take initiative. They knew they could toss me anything and would be high. I would take care of it and just run with it and stuff too. So does that help? Yeah. Sorry for the Jenny story, but <laughs> Any question here? Yep. Uh, for folks online, Susan, Dan, everyone, and more questions? If, if, if not, I'll, I'll fill in a question. I, I actually two questions. One okay. is about the woman professional. One is about the aerospace cybersecurity. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, Mary just mentioned General Ellen Polikowski. I, I met her a couple of years ago. I, I remember in her speech, and ap afterward, I also talked to her personally. But she was uh, talking about, you know, when she and her husband, you know, initially kind of the same rank and gradually it kind of split mm -hmm. different track. And uh, it, her husband was very supportive and those kind of things. 
And uh, you just also mentioned, you know, sometimes you, you face some people, you know, they're not friendly with you or anything. Like you actually happen to some of the minority people as well. Do you think in those kind of scenario, uh, did you get enough support in Air Force or uh, surrounding, you know, like uh, anybody give you any kind of support? Uh, the, the reason why I mentioned it is that, um, you know, for AWA, we have Mary Lee and uh, we have, you know, of course, uh, Adam, uh, 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 General Politkowski and mm -hmm. we have Cindy Magnus and many great women professionals. So uh, our our women went went out to empower uh, other women and girls, provide certain resources, but it may not be enough. So how do you think? Did you get enough uh, resources to support you, or you feel you you will hope that at that time you get a, a much stronger su uh, support? Um. It's actually, it's actually, it's not an easy question to answer because I, I think I had pockets of it um, at times. Um, actually, one of my really good friends right now, um, she was in 06 and I was a major and, um, and she always kind of was looking out for me to some extent, but I didn't always know or take her up on it until more recently than, than anything. Um, I never really had mentors per se, cause I never really clicked with folks, but I also, I, me personally, this is me personally, I mentorship programs and I, I mentor people all the time too. So it's, I, I fully believe in all that. Um, again, I go, I think it, I internalize and think a whole lot. And so, and for right or wrong, that's just the way I process and brain. So sometimes it's not always, um, uh, how I work through things to, to verbalize or have, you know, some of that, there are times when I, when I go and do and, and, and whatnot too. Um, I actually had a friend, um, because my then husband, um, at AFPC, they were trying to assign him better than assign me. And my friend who was at a another friend at AFPC, he was like, no, Jen's the one we need to, we need to track and move. And they, and so he, he helped push me. So there's like little tiny things kind of throughout. Um, but you know, like from a mental health perspective, no, never really anything there. Even when uh, I've tried to seek it out, like it it can be a hot mess sometimes trying to to get some of that support. Um, when I've gone to leadership before, you know, um, and say like I need help, I I don't know how else to more explicitly explain this to you, and and be, get shot down, you know. Um, being in yes, I've been in toxic environments. I've been in very supportive environments, you know. So it just part of it just depends, I guess. Um, I but again for me and i don't know if this is because i wasn't part of any one community specifically like i never had i never felt like i had um you know the parachute you know or or anything like that um per se um but I, again i think it i i would not trade any of that though to be honest because i love everything that i've been able to experience and how i can um synthesize and bring all that tactical down to the or excuse me strategic down to the tactical and like how these like i my brain again my brain works where i can see how all that goes and i wouldn't have known that unless i had seen aircraft and munitions and space and command and control and missile defense and like so when they talk jatsy too i'm like yep i i totally know how all that can <laughs> work and float together because i've done all of those pieces that they're trying to pull together right um but I, does that help answer your question yes very good yeah, yeah. and uh, actually we, we have been trying to um you know, 
mentor or you know try to be supportive to a uh, uh, woman or gir uh, girl engineer or want to go we have a lot of uh, 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 women students young professional they, they you know can look up to you and uh, Mary Lee and uh, seeking for you know certain kind of advice or yeah no I'm I'm always open anybody can always I and I'm more than happy to talk and chat and any of that stuff for me it's always like if this is just me like I've, I've been me all my life you know so if when yeah. people are like oh my god you've done crazy things or amazing things I'm like I was just being me the whole time That's like right. I don't know how else to be um and I think sometimes when people like start to feel they're trying being something else um and they're not following their spidey sense or they're not doing that so anyway it's, to me it's always funny when people are like Oh my gosh, you're like so amazing. I'm like, I'm just Jen, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> you are you, you are Jen, exactly. Yeah. And one thing you just said, you know, your mom uh, asked you, is this they pick you because you are a girl or because you're capable? Actually, sometimes we, we um, reach out and try to uh, kind of uh, show our women professionals, uh, uh, you know, this um, confidence or thing. And sometimes we, we did, you know, get, uh, get some kind of feedback, seem to do. You say, you say, are you doing this? woman professional thing is because you are kind of saying women uh, or girls is need to be protected or something mm -hmm. like that no i just told them no it, it's not because you know i understand you know they want don't want to be feel that way uh, to feel that way that because they they were successful because they are women or girls we, we definitely don't want that we want to make yeah. a message a man and woman are equal you know, you are capable, then you have no ceilings. You can, you can. Well, that's where it's like, and I think a lot of the language, it's gotten better, but it's not there. Like, um, women still get asked, how do you balance being a mom and being an officer or like a professional? And I know, like, you know, it doesn't bother me. I'll answer. But I, and I, I don't know if I... I also flip it to say life work balance instead of work life because it puts an emphasis and focus a little bit differently. But it's like, until we can stop asking girls exclusively that or start asking boys that as well, then there's always still that divide. Like, why are you assuming, like, you're asking, by asking that, you're assuming that they can't to some extent. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, um, yeah, the, um, it's just going to take some more time. And like I said, I hopefully I've taught my kids enough that for them, it's not, it's not anything that it's like a, well, duh, you know, you know, of course girls can code. Why would they need their own special camp? You know, um, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I want to mention, you know, way, you know, we, our former executive director, Dr. Cindy Magnus was a woman professional and uh, also astronaut. And we mm -hmm. have uh, Mar Mary Lee here, you here, and, uh, uh, Queen Shark Well, yeah, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, uh, just say, but we want to show, um, you know, uh, this AI with this uh, e equality. Yeah. People and more, uh, need the help from you, more, more people. And the second question is, is about cybersecurity because recently yeah. I saw the news, uh, it's about Space Force. It, it's not secret, it's open news. You say <laughs> a company called the Sedaro. Okay. Sedaro wins Space Force contract to develop spacecraft digital twins. It's about the mission called ISAM, I-S-A-M. Okay. You know, of course, it, it, you know, people are putting a lot of focus on digital, digital twins, but that also exposed. Yeah. You know, to a lot of cybersecurity issues. And uh, you as, you know, you are the perfect combination because your background is aerospace engineering and you're doing cybersecurity. Cyber, uh, cyber so, um, and uh, this is given to the small business contract. Mm -hmm. So, 
I understand that you know people want to give encourage more small business and now you do this. How, but how do we think uh, this versus like uh, in house? You know, like uh, maybe this is say this yeah. to Air Force um, AFRL, and um, you know they just give it out mm -hmm. orbital uh, prime program. Yeah. So why don't Air Force uh, you know or Air Force Research Lab or do something? So if you contract outside, then how much you have to put extra effort to make sure the cybersecurity of those digital twins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's there's a several different things to unpack there, right? Um, so especially in the digital realm of things, um, when you're talking about IT or like digital engineering sorts of, and I would challenge people like, what are you trying to use digital engineering for? It's been a buzzword way too much. People don't even know what they're trying to digitize or why they're trying to digitize it and stuff. And so they go after it. And again, what's the outcome you're trying to achieve? And is this the right path for that to, to go after? Um, but when you're talking IT software, all, industry is so far ahead of the government um, and have taken so many more advances than so that if the government tried to build everything now that industry's already done, not only would it take us a good eight, 10 years to catch up to where industry is today, but then in those eight to 10 years, industry would have jumped ahead of us besides, right? So why not leap into leveraging industry now and then working and shaping with them as a partner to get to where the government can start to catch up on some of the deficits they have in in those kinds of uh, ones and zero systems right um with that though um I, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of buy if you can't imagine uh, like buy as much as you can like use that stuff to propel you get you going through problem is is that most government don't know how to do those contracts um because there's um there's still a lot of industrial age mindset on acquisition and not what a digital age acquisition needs to look like. And as a result, the contracts are in a way that doesn't allow you to move forward or at a pace or in a relationship contract versus a, um, I'm trying to remember the other term that they had, um, the standard contracts, you know, the old, the old kind of, of um, throw over the fence. Here's an RFP with a PWS and like supply kind of supply is not the right word either, but you, but you see what I'm saying, right? Um, until they can get into like what that, that partnership and relationship role of a contract is, which is hard language to try and, and um, create. Um, it, it's it's going to be a little difficult. Part of the things I did at KM though, is I blended the teams together. So I had government folks with contractors to make something. And so say you have a product team of like 10 folks, right? Eight are coders, you got a designer, you got, you know, whatever, you got your product owner, blah, 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 blah. Um, some of them could have been a government coder. Most often I had a government designer. It's not that I mirrored and had a contractor designer on the other side, because then nobody knows who's in charge but they all were working together commonly to deliver. So they understood, you know, the pieces and parts that go through. That's a whole other skill set the government doesn't necessarily have. And I was trying to grow with KM to kind of foster that mentality and mindset. But until there's like 
you know, I had that lieutenant who's like, I just watch contractors write acquisition documents. He had no skin in the game. He had no like understanding of what was actually going on in those documents. And, and so until you get, again, some of that ownership in there and shape that contract through to do that, there's there's that piece of it that's going to make it harder to propel forward. Now, the other thing is, is that those contracts also have to be like hardball. Like the government is going to have to be like, this isn't working. We're done. Um, and be flexible enough to where um, you've created an ecosystem um, or, or a, you know, the system of systems to you can absorb that and you have that flexibility automatically in there to where you pull in the best of breeds for whatever pieces and parts that you have and then kind of progress forward. And from a security perspective, um, and this is a lot of the things I was trying to push when I was CIO, bring us and the security people in before you even start doing an RFP, because you have to have those kinds of comments and that expectation is part of the solicitation right from the start, because if a company cannot be accredited or their product cannot be a certified and get an ATO or whatever the heck you want to call it, then they should not be considered. And until that company gets into that um, status, sorry, you're, you're not going to be able to get the government work. We have an obligation to secure our systems in a certain way. So I would tell people all the time, like if you're hosting at IL-2, I'm an NSS system. I'm at IL, I have to be at IL-5, IL-6. If you aren't going to, if you can't be there, then I can't use you. You might have the best tech in the whole world, but unless you can work and be secure with everything else, I'm sorry. But, and that's the honest truth that people have to have instead of saying like, oh, you're great tech and we're just, we're, we'll figure it out or we'll bolt it on or we'll take the risk. I'm like, okay, but then why are you like, why, you know? So um, again, there, there's multiple facets to it to kind of get to the point that you're saying. Um, and there's some great small businesses out there who've, who've done a lot of, and are secure and are um, competent. And they we need that talent besides because we don't have enough of it in the government writ large either. Yeah, because uh, a lot of folks like in JPL or, you know, Meredith's company, Aerospace Corporation have been wonderful jobs, you know, for aerospace things. And, and also they are doing also digital twins or this very important question mm -hmm. uh, issues yep. yeah so any more questions you any folks online uh so um actually after the event um uh, uh jane will stay a little bit uh here for was up was a lunch and mary lee so if you have any question welcome to stay enjoy the coffee and uh, uh chat with with us so yep. uh, since everybody has no questions so let me see Yeah, so we have a uh, appreciation certificate to uh, say present to thank thank you. Thank you. Oh, so sweet. AIAA LA um, Las Vegas. We're always very appreciative of all the speakers that we get. Thanks for supporting the session, and especially now coming off of August, which was celebrating um, Women's Month and everything. So we're really glad to have you talk about your your career, and it certainly was very varied, okay. and uh, you know a lot of about a lot of stuff so i'm sure it's going to help you in your new um, role you. as ceo for plan z so awesome. to you thank, thank you. you thank you so much <laughs> thanks thank you We actually have one for Mary Lee too. Thank you for your leadership in the uh, women's professional program and a woman equality day event uh, sorry, we cannot do it uh, last month, but uh, today we still continue. We'll continue to do more. 
So we need your leadership. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so folks, this concludes today's uh, presentation event. Uh, uh, it's really wonderful. Uh, so we'll continue to uh, for uh, this type of activity, and we'll continue to work with Jane and uh, AIR. We put uh, aerospace cyber cybersecurity as a top priority. As I mentioned to uh, Mr. Steve Lee, uh, is a lead uh, in an Airway national effort, and the Meredith company is also doing a wonderful job. Uh, you, you should you will know you across street. Okay, so uh, we have lunchbox here. So uh, for the speaker and Mary Lee and uh, uh, the rest of you, please uh, stay uh, and uh, networking network with with us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you.